Welcome to Young Americans, a weekly DIY depth psychology podcast where we explore differential diagnoses of reality narratives and creative ways we navigate the void. I am one of your hosts, Jillian Masland. Uh, Prin Honda. I am the other host, Brooke Macbeth, and I've only been taking Welsh on Duolingo for like a week, so, you know. Um, hi, Jillian. Before hi. we get started, I would like to mention our extremely talented artist Susie May at S-U-Z-Y underscore M-A-E on Instagram. I'd highly recommend following her. She makes great stuff. She runs the store Neon Altar, which is at Neon Altar, A-L-T-A-R, also on Instagram. And our musician, Joel St. Julian, who is also really rewarding to follow on Instagram, posted a really good video on stories yesterday at J-O-E-L-S-T-J-U-L-I-E-N. So, Jillian. Yeah, we had an earthquake this morning, huh? I did not feel it. I'm usually awake around four for no reason, and there was an earthquake, and I didn't feel it. I sure felt it. Um, as How I the was... cats do? <laughs> the cats, actually, they did all right. Um, one of them was sort of sheltering under a couch, which I thought was good technique, since I think that is the recommended action during earthquake. Yeah, totally. Get under something, so... Yeah. You know, I've really brought them up to be <laughs> faster conscious, I suppose, um, without meaning to. But I had this dream last night that I was telling you about Tell earlier. Tell me about the dream, yes. I can't wait to hear this. For some reason, I feel like everyone needs to hear about my dream, which I think is like one of those things where they're like, I can guarantee you this. There's one thing nobody ever wants, it's to listen to your dreams, which I just agree <laughs> to people's dreams, but where sometimes it's like free verse and you're just like politely don't your poetry <laughs> stop yeah. serenading me you weird guy that <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> um, yeah, I had this dream and it was incredibly vivid um, <laughs> it was so real um, I started off and it was one of those things where you know you have a group of people and in the logic of your dream you you know what your relationship is to right. each of them except I can't put my finger on whether they were an amalgam of real people that I do know, or if some of them were and other ones were just kind of like filler people that like were furnished by my subconscious. Or people but, you have yet to meet if it were a prophetic dream, which we don't know yet. Perhaps. So what happened was there was a bridge and I've actually had a lot of dreams about like bridges and like traveling through water and across water in different ways. Hmm. But, um, we were traveling on bicycles and on the bridge itself, it was like the Golden Gate Bridge where you've kind of got the middle part, which would be for automobiles. And then on either side, there were like little um, bike lanes mm -hmm. and you sort of go way on one, one way and the other. But there was also a bit of like, um, like caretaker type containers, like caretaker rooms along the side between oh, whoa. the edge. Yeah. So I was on the bridge and there were all these people on the bridge that were trying to, um, like every so often they were trying to stop you and like make you promise that you were going to vote for a certain person. And right. I was kind of trying to like, sidestep them. So yeah, I totally. took the bike over onto the little side rail part. And then about like halfway across the bridge, it just uh, vanished underneath my wheels. And so someone was sort of in a window of one of these little rooms and they kind of reached out and like pulled me and my bike in through there. Awesome. And then I went out the and I, I went the rest of the way on the road and then I arrived at this kind of craftsman lodge which was like a, a meeting place or like places where you might have a wedding kind of around the bay area and there were a lot of people there and we were all getting together 
and it was some kind of like a working class union meeting and everyone was sort of paying their dues and getting set up for the union and everybody who was like a functionary in this particular group was like a Scandinavian death metal cat and so they're, <laughs> they're like in full the makeup and like the whole outfit thing variations they were yeah. there were different ones like some of them were more full-on like they had been sleeping in the grave and like really doing yeah. it and were just kind of more like um like gentle-hearted vikings of varying degrees yeah, and yeah. So, yeah there was a part where I was there in the room and I was walking up I was like waiting in line to get to this this one guy who was sitting at the desk you know he was sort of this like um civil servant viking sort of and i um had to give him money and so i was like pulling my money out and it was all weird money it, like it was paper money but it wasn't yeah. usual like american dollars and i took it out to hand to him to like pay my dues and he like looked at it and then he just threw it in the trash <laughs> and then I, <laughs> I was like well if you're gonna throw it in the trash i guess i'll put my hand in the trash and take that money out because that like, makes sense or something and as i was doing that in swans Marilyn Manson like bigger than life so tall and then all of these death metal cats just start like they, they just like like girl, like girls <laughs> they start fawning over him and they're all just like swooning and they all want to go like see him but he isn't actually like the vibe in the dream was that he wasn't actually like the leader it was like he was just coming by to like show solidarity with whatever the movement was that we were all a part of yeah and then, like, right around the time he arrived, I suddenly had this, like, kind of suspension of disbelief where I was like, why isn't anybody wearing a mask? This is so fucked up. We're <laughs> 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 by a group of people and we're all really close together and no one's wearing masks. And then we were all kind of standing around and we had been given these bad, like, these patches that were on our, um, on our chest just here and they were, like, black cats patches that had something to do with like the working class union aspect of it all and Marilyn Manson was going around the room and just like putting his hand on the badges of everyone and as he did he would say this he had a phrase that he kept saying that was like the bodies of the fallen stoke the fire of the revolution <laughs> we have to make this image let's ask Susie to design this <laughs> that's incredible Julian. Like, like that was sort of the that was the main part of the dream and then like everyone's getting ready to leave and everybody had their their bicycle seats under their arm because like that huh. had been our i guess our theft determent method was yeah, yeah. we were taking our seats off and we're kind of like carrying them around very big area so i was with like my sort of little subgroup of people um that i was like mostly affiliated with and i think we were maybe like a club or something um and as we were getting ready to go, the one guy who was sort of the leader of it or like the boss of it started saying, hey, you guys, you want to stop and have like our group holiday party, you know, like at the bar on the way back. And we were all like, oh, gee, I don't know if we should or not. And then he was like, come on, we can put it on the company account. <laughs> <laughs> and that was pretty much the dream is like I woke up with this like overwhelming sense of like warmth towards Marilyn Manson, where I was like, Comrade, <laughs> down with the people. Thank you. <laughs> I thought of you as such like a populist <laughs> hero, but I guess you are, according to. I mean, according to Dream <laughs> Julian world, unless you like went into an alternate reality. 
Well, you know, it's funny. I told my friend the story and then she said she thought maybe I had gone to the underworld, but I was like, there were so many Vikings there. It must have been Valhalla. Oh my God, totally. I mean, where else? It couldn't have been, you know, yeah. it was some kind of an exalted, you know, sort of Norse lodge of some sort. Yeah. But it's lucky you got to visit. Yeah, yeah. I was not expecting it. It was really just <laughs> like, you know, a bolt from the blue. But um, yeah. how about you? <laughs> um, I just squirted some Dr. Bronner's in my eyeball and that was terrible. Uh, Jelena yeah. just discussed this over text, how peppermint worst. is the worst flavor. Yeah, because yeah. it really burns. So yeah. Other than that, things are fine. You know, it's... surviving the coronavirus, trying to uh, remain as constructive and positive as possible in the face of like this <laughs> shit show our country is experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, have been binge watching anything particularly noteworthy um, lately? You know, I've had stuff on in the background while I've been reading and it's, I'm doing that anxiety soothing familiarity thing. So I've had parks and recreation going on in the background for a long time. It's totally Perfect. innocuous, familiar enough to be like comforting, but also doesn't require really any attention. So <laughs> just like. I, I, I can't even listen to a podcast and write it, like write with a pen on paper at the same time. I'm one of those people that like, if two things are going on, I, I can, I can do like neither. (laughs) Thing that I do when Kieran isn't home to like replace, you know, the sounds of life in the house. He's coming back tomorrow. He's been gone for a month and a half. So yeah. Listeners, Kieran is my child in case you didn't know. (laughs) Wrapping summer, summery child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) He's going to be practically able to vote when he gets back. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. I know. Oh God. So should we get started? Yeah, you send him out for a pack of smokes. Yeah. Oh, actually, that does come up in my uh, Britney Spears story later. Or rather, it's an anecdote I remember reading in a gossip magazine about her at the time that when her kids were like two and three, she would call her cigarettes mommy's lollipops and send them to fetch mommy's lollipops from the next room. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> I don't do that. It reminds me of the story that actually kind of <laughs> segues into what I'm about to talk about, which yeah. is my dad told this story. Um, he was really, really young when his grandparents died, but they were kind of, had been a bit of like a dynamic duo in the Roaring Twenties in the town where they lived in Pennsylvania. And they, they never really left that particular era of their lives. They just right. kind of like kept on doing it. Um, so when they were, he and his, he has a brother, had a brother who was like, um, exi- like Irish twins, you know, the, uh, pardon me if that's... <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a complete slur and I do apologize, but that's just, that's the only term I've ever heard used to describe that phenomenon where you have a sibling that's basically born within 12 months of you. I mean, so, if anybody's fair game right now, it's probably Europeans, so. <laughs> yeah, but let's be fair. The Irish have not had an easy oh. road. No, they, they really were, have not. Not here either. They were, yeah, they were like one of the more colonized white English speaking groups of people. In fact, weren't originally mm-hmm. English um but so you had a brother who was really close in age and then they had another brother who was born like when they were like four or five and so these little little kids speaking of like the britney spears children were sent on a train from massachusetts to pennsylvania shit! i think with an adult and i think there was some adult but he's like not sure who it was and so they were sent to, to stay with the grandparents and um oh my God. The only memory, he has a few memories of it, but the only memory really has of the grandparents 
is that when it was like cocktail hour, these kids <laughs> would sort of be tried. Because the rest of the time they actually spent hanging out with the gardener and Shirley, who were these two amazing black people that had been like working for the grandparents forever. Oh, wow. Um, so they ended up being trotted in to whatever, you know, the sort of cocktail situation was. And they had one of those ashtrays that you could press the button and it would like flip down and all I'm the ashes. I'm still fascinated by those, dude. I'm in my 40s. I still find them fascinating. <laughs> that's like his real like number one memory of his grandparents was oh. like standing. Like, Pushing that button over and over again. Waiting until like they're back <laughs> there so they could. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like, oh. kind of in my topic, in a way. It's yeah, let's get into it. I'm so ready, except, you know, god damn it. <laughs> yes. Um, in the patriarchy. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to open um, mm -hmm. rather theatrically by doing a passage and then a read that I dug up. Um, this is from quite near the end, like the last couple of pages of the book. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald, which, um, well, allegedly by F. Scott Fitzgerald, <laughs> come to that in a moment. Um, which was in mine too, yeah. First book, um, and it came out in 1920, or it was published in 1920, so here we go. The afternoon waned from the purging good of three o'clock to the golden beauty of four. Afterward, he walked through the dull ache of a setting sun when even the clouds seemed bleeding, and at twilight, he came to a graveyard. There was a dusky, dreamy smell of flowers everywhere. On an impulse, he considered trying to open the door of a rusty iron vault, washed clean and covered with late-blooming, weepy, watery blue flowers that might have grown from dead eyes, sticky to the touch with a sickening odor. So, wow. Before that was <laughs> a passage of Scott Fitzgerald's debut album, debut mm -hmm. album, debut book, it was in fact a passage in Zelda Sayre, Nay Sayre, who became Zelda Fitzgerald. It was in fact a passage in her diary. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> the cannibal so of the diary. Ugh. Zelda, um, she was born Zelda Sayre. Actually, her birthday just, um, we just passed what would have been her 120th birthday. Oh. She was born 24th of July, so happy belated birthday. Yeah. She was from a town called Montgomery, which is in Alabama. Her mom was Minerva Minnie Buckner Machen, and her father was Anthony Dickinson Sayre, who was a justice at the Supreme Court of the state oh. of Alabama. She was the youngest of six children. Um, her mom found the name Zelda, I think, in some like fanciful <laughs> you know, <laughs> of her era. So kind of like, I think it was like some Victorian stories. There were characters, um, the name Zelda. And I, if I recall correctly, all the kids had these kind of like whimsical names. Interesting. Yeah. And so um, she grew up in, at that time, just before World War I, um, so that, that idyllic, like, um, you know, children wearing sailor suits and little ruffly things. Uh, when she got to be a teenager, she was renowned for being a bit of a tearaway, a bit, a bit of a cut-up, cut you know, Bill? Uh, she was real into swimming and dancing and smoking and, like, riding around in cars with boys. Yeah, she's um, a fun, fun gal, the Zelda. Girl, yeah, um, but, like, Bearing in mind, this is the South and, you know, the, 
traditionally the archetype of the Southern Belle, which maybe may or may not manage to like kind of keep rounding round to as we talk, um, is this very like sort of, it's like a patriarchal wet dream of this woman who is like simultaneously flirtatious and chaste and docile and speaks really beautifully and, and is always just, you know, like, the pinnacle of perfect and like never hair out of place. And like, that just wasn't her, you know, she was like a fun, mm-hmm. very free mm-hmm. wheel kind of a woman, um, young woman. And so when she was 18, enter Scott Fitzgerald. So he was from the Midwest and this was, you know, like America likes to talk about being in World War One, but honestly, they really just kind of like showed up really near the end. <laughs> <laughs> No, I've been here the whole time. What are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, for real. No, they definitely like to think they like swooped in when it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, So he had um, been stationed at an army base not too far from where she lived. Met her at a dance. um, Was really smitten with her. He went on ahead later on and he fictionalized their meeting as the meeting between Jay Gatsby and Daisy Buchanan. Oh, Ray Gatsby. Um, there's a lot of these sort of parallels. So um, yeah, and not long after he met her, he ended up uh, being transferred someplace else, and then victory was declared in Europe. So he never went to World War One, but he was sort of in the military in different bases during this time, and they did a lot of writing back and forth. He saved every single one of her letters, which he then like sort of. Um, generously sampled from in his <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, I was gonna say cannibalized. But yeah, yeah. cannibalized <laughs> is a good way of putting it too, for sure. He definitely um, really helped himself to like full passages all the time. And there was a point in 1918 when he had hold of her diary, showed it to his friend PV Parrot. <laughs> who then showed it to his friend George G. Nathan and they all were like oh we should publish this and call it Diary of a Popular Girl so fuck all you guys don't read girls diaries um so he gets to New York and he's he's um he's trying to sling this book that he's written stroke um you know kind of built out of pieces of her writing and he gets up there and he's like writing to her and he's saying, oh yeah, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna publish my book and then you're gonna show up and we're gonna get married. And that's basically almost exactly what happened. It was like one day the book got bought, the next day she showed up in New York and like three days after that they got married. It was really quick. Yeah. Um, Dorothy Parker ran into them. They were wasted and they were sitting on top of the taxi. <laughs> and the way she described them is that they both did look as if they had just stepped out of the sun. Oh, and he was kind of her. <laughs> well, yeah, when he was wooing her and telling her about coming to New York, he promised that she would arrive with all the iridescent beginning of the world. So, is this a manic episode? <laughs> one could argue that it is. Uh, grandiose thinking is like <laughs> symptom number one in the DSM five, which I just bought. <laughs> But who are we to split hairs? <laughs> I mean, really. It's all just a coding system anyway. This was also kind of like one of the uh, one of the great golden ages of alcoholism. So, you know, they were considered to be like the most fun, glittering couple. They were also totally sloshed. They were constantly getting, like they were living in hotels, getting kicked out of hotels. Mm-hmm. They had a daughter named Scotty, who was born, I believe, in, it was in 1921 or 22. Um, 
And apocryphally, when she's coming out of the twilight slumber, which was, you know, a common feature birthing process at that point, she's supposed to have sort of slurred, oh, I hope it's beautiful and a fool, a beautiful little fool, which might sound familiar because that's exactly what Daisy Buchanan says about her baby. Uh Uh-huh. She demonstrated an early example of what might now be referred to as shade with the... um, zippy line plagiarism begins at home oh i like that though that's yeah, like well, a razor case, sharp little evisceration from that genius yeah she knew what she was talking about yeah. um so they decamp from the u.s in 1924 because that's kind of that era post-world war one was really cheap to live in europe there were all of these kind of bohemian Americans like drifting around over there um, and while they were living in Antibes is is sometimes a red flag particularly um, for men of like that generation was that he was just like a real macho fraud like mm-hmm. she just was not into it all. he was one of those just like more manly than manly to the point yeah. where you're like oh you doth protest your manliness like a lot you know I'm sure he was astute enough to see right through that guy he seemed like a fucking blowhard yeah that was what she thought Scott yeah. disagreed Scott was all like star, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, um, yeah I made are- an obscene gesture <laughs> that Jillian agreed with. I agree. Um, <laughs> motion carried. Yeah, thank you. So then, around the age of twenty-seven, so we're looking at um, the late nineteen twenties. Zelda, I can only imagine, is feeling very stifled in this um, yeah. relationship. And- for so, husband's willing to lock her in the house, I'm sure he's all kinds of willing to do other things that trap and suffocate her. Well, yeah, and the other thing about him is, you know, he's a genius. His time is super important. His work is extra precious. Mm-hmm. So he expects her to kind of be all around all the time. Yeah. He doesn't really give her that many options of what she's supposed to do with herself. And then he's like, I am an artist. I, I can't talk to you. I have to go into my, like, writing room and do my writing. Oh, my and- God whatever. Yeah. So that's very fixated on the fact when she was younger, she was really into ballet and she just throws herself into ballet. She's, she's practicing like eight hours a day. This is an era pre black swan, you know, so we didn't know that women in their late twenties were capable <laughs> of a very high standard in ballet with like a serious amount of work. Yeah. People so, in the twenties probably thought she was some uh, crazed geriatric alcoholic doing ballet. In- that was more or less the uh, the takeaway. Yeah, they were like, who is this old hag? Who does yeah. she think she is? Like, she'll never be a ballerina. And there was actually a point where a company in Naples in Italy was was going to invite her into, um, I think, God. to study. I know that there was a, an actual, I don't know that she was going to be performing there. Mm-hmm. Um, but for whatever reason, undisclosed reasons, she has to decline this invitation. Uh, and Scott is believe it or not, dismissive of what everything she's doing. So around April 1930, she is the first time she's institutionalized. She's sent to a sanatorium in France where a doctor named um, Eugen Bleuler diagnoses her as schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. This follows on, it's a period of about April 1930 to September 1931 where she's institutionalized. Um, She's in Montreux, Switzerland. She's in Prangin, which is near Lake Geneva. I forget if it's the French or the Swiss side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in September 1931, they go back to Alabama, to Montgomery, because her father is dying. Um, but Scott doesn't, because he goes to Hollywood, because he's you know, an important man with work to do. So um, then she ends up 
in an institution again in February 1932. This is when they're living in Baltimore, which mm. sidebar, um, the neighborhood that they lived in in Baltimore was the childhood home of John Waters and Divine. Oh! <laughs> um, one of my all-time uncles. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, so she was in, uh, in Baltimore at the Phipps Clinic, um, which is a part of Johns Hopkins. Um, while she was there, she had this extraordinarily productive six-week frame, wherein she wrote her own novel, which is called Save Me the Waltz, and was semi-autobiographical. Scott hit the fucking roof. He was so, so butthurt because she had used material which he had been intending to use in Tender as the Night. So he called her a plagiarist and a third-rate writer. Oh my God, what a narcissist. Oh my God, she used her own material that she wrote that he wanted to plagiarize and he did that. That was his and reaction. Being a plagiarist for using her own material before he could. Oh um, my God. Well, yeah, and the story, um, the heroine of the story is a woman named Alabama, uh, and one thing that's mentioned about her is that she's struggling to rise above being a uh, quote-unquote backseat driver in life. Um, <laughs> Spoken like the wife of a narcissist. Indeed. Um, and so then, from about the mid-1930s onward, unfortunately, she's pretty well in and out of institutions. She's never really totally out anymore um and then there's just some quotes um here i'm gonna tell you what um the author nancy milford wrote about oh. in her book in 1970 which i'll come on to in a minute because it's kind of like the definitive work um that really brought brought her back into mm -hmm. popular consciousness um she wrote the vehemence of his of his rancor towards zelda was clear it was she who had ruined him. She who had made him exhaust his talents. He had been cheated of his dream by Zelda. And he says, Scott says, I was her great reality, often the only liaison agent who could make the world tangible to her. Oh, gross. Right? <laughs> Sorry, but yeah. <laughs> Seriously, like get your cum yeah. out of my- Seriously, I mean, gross. Fuck you, dude. <laughs> You're not my arbiter of reality, but thanks. Yeah, for real. <laughs> so then, the, the, final, the final time that they're actually together in person um, was in 1938, where apparently, so she, I think at this point, had moved to a hospital that she kind of was in and out of, but mostly, mostly in, called Highland Hospital, which was in North Carolina. And so in 1938, the hospital was, um, had organized a, an outing, like a field trip for some of the, uh, the patients to Havana, to Cuba. And somehow she missed it, but then Scott said, well, why don't we go to Havana? Mm -hmm. You know, estranged wife that I've been keeping in institutions for, you know, like almost 10 years, this, what could go wrong? <laughs> I guess, I guess, you know, he encountered a cockfight and he wanted to break it up and he got the shit beaten out of him. Of course and by he the did. Yeah, of course he did. Don't break up um, a cockfight. The people who are doing that are going to totally fuck you up. <laughs> yeah, are definitely invested in their cockfight. They yeah. don't need, they don't you know, need like, some effete alcoholic writer trying to be like, don't do that, guys. Yeah, you really don't need like a sunburned, you know, probably like carbuncle faced fucking <laughs> wastrel of a plagiarist. <laughs> white, <laughs> white, white, oh. 
wanting into Cuba and let people know what he does and does not approve of. Um, right, right. No, they, nobody seemed to think that either. So he ends up getting beaten up and then he comes back so intoxicated and exhausted that he <laughs> is hospitalized for a time. Um, oh my God. And throughout all this period, he's been mostly living in Los Angeles, basically like pissing time away with quote unquote writer's block, which right. I argue may just be lack of access to, yeah. you know, oh, his the, muse. <laughs> yeah, 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 basically his host. Uh huh. I would go so far as to say <laughs> the fucking parasite. So, um, this is when we get into the, the really sad part. I mean, not that the whole thing hasn't been sad, but this is where we come to sort of the final tragedies. So in 1940, he dies of, um, I think it's a heart attack. Um, like, in, oh, I'm sorry. How old was he? You cut out a little bit. Uh, I think, I'm trying to remember what year he was born because he was a couple years older than her. So I think he was somewhere in his like earlier mid forties. Like, yeah, yeah. He was not very old. It was like several circuits of rough road mm-hmm. in there, you know? Um, his candle had a wick that went out both sides. And so then on the, so she's still in North Carolina um, at Highland Hospital. And on the 10th of March, um, a fire breaks out in the kitchen of the hospital and it actually goes all the way up the dumb waiter. Oh my God. Sucked up yeah. the dumb waiter, it travels that way. All of the fire escapes are of wooden. Oh my god! <laughs> Pre-code, like they, they probably have like figured a lot of things out since then. Um, so all of the fire escapes are wooden. They all catch fire. At the time that the fire broke out, Zelda was actually locked inside of her room, awaiting electroshock therapy. Oh. Um, and she was one of nine women <gasps> to die in the fire. Uh, they said that she was identified by dental records and I think they, like there was one slipper that she was wearing that oh they saw. Um, and then they were actually buried together. Um, and there's something about how they were buried. Like I think they were buried originally in one place and then their daughter had them moved to a different place, but they, they're still side by side somewhere. I think they're back in um, Scott's hometown, like in his family plot, but um, I wasn't, super focused on that part of the story. Um, so then what's interesting is cause like, you know, every child has to endure reading The Great Gatsby in high school, but there yeah. was definitely followed on like a considerable number of decades where he was kind of considered like a flash in the pan, you know, yeah. like he had written in the twenties and they were this dazzling sort of- um, It couple, you know, just, like, it was- Yeah, they yeah. were, they, it couple and um you know it was such like a um a volatile bright like crazy time and then world war ii happened of course so like people just weren't really thinking about it yeah so sometime like the early 1950s um i think it was a play or a book came out by a guy named rudd schulberg called disenchanted and there was another piece that came out called Far Side Paradise by Arthur Meisner, um, at which point in the 1950s, Scott, there's a reassessment of um, the pair of them, but in particular Scott, since he was a more prolific author. Um, and he was considered a fascinating failure, while Zelda was largely to blame for his lost potential. That's a very 1950s narrative. Holy yeah, shit. I mean, it's all <laughs> fucking white guys writing yeah. the story. Academics, and so then comes up in uh, 1970 a woman named Nancy Milford, who I believe was actually still a graduate student at Columbia. I'm pretty sure, 
wrote the um, the pretty definitive biography Zelda, which um, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. At which point, um, people began to see her as an artist in her own right who had been belittled by a controlling husband. And in the seventies, she she takes on this um, this new meaning as a kind of a feminist icon, um, an unappreciated potential that was suppressed by the patriarchy, which- Good, I'm glad that was added to the narrative. Yeah, it seems a little closer to the mark. Like, yeah. oh, the this is like some fun little like sort of um, end notes uh, in pop culture. She was the inspiration for the Eagles song, Witchy Woman. As <laughs> oh my God. Um, she actually- Immortalized by Elaine on Seinfeld. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I've never watched Seinfeld, but I believe okay, you told me that before. <laughs> Something pretty cool is that she indeed was the, um, the namesake for Princess Zelda in The Legend of Zelda. Bad. Yeah, and uh, Shigeru Miyamoto said of her, uh, she was a famous and beautiful woman from all accounts, and I liked the sound of her name. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Yeah, um, so you know, from, what do we want to call her? From Muse to, um, you know, video game. Two <laughs> yeah. possible feminist icon for some amount of time in the 70s and maybe in the future. Perhaps, and I think she's an interesting, I mean, she's an interesting person to look at through the lens of femin feminism because, yeah. I mean, I don't know, I, like, I was thinking about this while I was driving to the weed store to pick up my order, like as I was opening the gate at my house. <laughs> The thing, my takeaway from the story is there could have been a Zelda without Scott, but there could not have been a Scott without Zelda. It but I don't think, way. I don't think the Zelda without Scott would have necessarily been remembered or known for anything. I think she, she might never have been noticed or read at all. I mean. Well, I don't even know if she would have tried to be a writer, you know, yeah. like I she to me kind of personifies that kind of like really just like constantly creative, um, constantly just like natural outpouring, whereas he's like so much more contrived and he's so much more, you know, technical mm -hmm. that the, the meeting of those two aspects is what creates the body of work. Mm -hmm. So I think there hadn't been a Scott I think she could have been, you know, like a society woman in the South, maybe, maybe in New York, depending on who she met. But I don't know that she would have had even I mean, like necessarily the desire to be like an artist in that way, because I think that there's something about seeing someone else taking like your essence. Yes. <laughs> that they can be this like success with it and then being like, hey, what the fuck? Like, yeah. <laughs> that be that you're, you're like doing that. <laughs> like with. Getting famous um, and rich off my shit person. Yeah. <laughs> I can do that. Maybe yeah. they work as catalysts for each other in some way. I wonder what their human design uh, charts look like. <laughs> I mean, also, the, their relationship was very toxic. And I can't, like, I'm not trying to say that Zelda wasn't in this tango. Like, I mean, they were both problematic individuals in their own right. But I just, I, I feel well, like... There was a power disparity. I mean, there was a very obvious great power imbalance between them. And she was not the one holding the power in that relationship. So, I mean, though it's ways, functional, you know. I think in some ways, though, she was holding cards. Like, she may yeah. not have had to be held cards. Yeah. And I, I think that there's, like, yeah, it's almost like someone having, like, I feel like he almost treats her in this, like, very patriarchal way, like a raw material. Yes. 
which is not a, an entirely wholly, un, wholly uncommon way that, you it's know, sort of more feminine people have been treated forever. Yeah. But yeah. Because, like, I just don't think Scott Fitzgerald would have been anything if he hadn't met her. No, you know? it doesn't I, seem like it. And I, Y'all have to read about fucking Jay Gatsby. Being, and that's the thing, too, is like this narrative in his stories of like every story is the same fucking story. It's like, <laughs> there's this girl. She's beautiful. She's fascinating. Oh, she's disappointing. I'm a sad uh -huh. man. Yep. Every fucking, you don't actually yep. have to read that child. I just, I just told you. It's the origin <laughs> of the Man Manic Pixie Dream Girl uh, story. I mean. <laughs> I think it's, it's like the prototypical yeah, I think that that's absolutely, absolutely in the mix. Yeah, this, um, yeah. So that's that's our our kind of seminal story of a a talented woman who is attempting to, you know, have her own. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm here with another tale of a talented woman and uh, the mental health narratives around talented women. So. I'm not a Britney Spears super fan, but recently during quarantine, I've been seeing some of her posts on Instagram, which are a little bit weird. And uh, when she had her freak out back around 2006 to 2008, I was a consumer of celebrity gossip magazines. And so I paid attention to that story because holy shit, that was crazy. So Britney Jean Spears. Born December 2nd, 1981, her hometown is Kentwood, Louisiana. She is a Sagittarius with an Aquarius moon and a Libra rising. I'm not getting more into her chart. I'm just putting that there in case anybody wants to think about it. So she started dance classes at age three, and then she was in the choir. She took singing lessons, gymnastics. She was very well supported by her parents in these endeavors. She like competed on the state level. Her mom was driving her around all this stuff and taking her to all these classes, getting her all this training. Um, she yeah. had... Her siblings, so she had like one older brother, she has an and older brother Brian, and a younger sister Jamie Lynn. And I'm not really going to talk about either of them that much. But Brian gave an interview recently, which I'll get to a little bit later. Jamie Lynn also, she had a show on Nickelodeon, but she has never had the amount of like public scrutiny as Britney. Um, yeah. So she auditioned for the Mickey Mouse Club at age eight, and they told her she was too young, but they thought she was talented and through that she was introduced to a New York City agent who suggested she attend the performing arts school in New York. So Lynn, her mother, took Brittany and her younger sister Jamie Lynn to New York and moved into an apartment there so Brittany could attend school and go to auditions. She ended up as the understudy in some off-Broadway play and just kept working and developing her singing and dancing talents there. Yeah. And she's like nine, ten years old when this happens. And yeah. She's a new yeah. 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 So uh they left Louisiana when she was really little and lived in New York for a couple of years so she could keep developing herself, which to me, um, I'm not even going to get into Lynn all that much because there's not a whole lot of recent information about Lynn Spears, but I've always figured that she was one of those stage mothers since, you know, two of her three children became pretty fucking famous. One of them, like, really famous. Yeah, I always thought she'd be, she and Dina Lohan kind yes. of is a similar sort of, yeah. like, or totally. in my like they were desperate for at least one of their kids to become real rich and real famous. Um, do you Dina know anything comes in later too? Um, do you know anything about like? Do you know if she herself had any sort of like when she was younger performed I don't know. or anything? Okay. This information might exist, and I was not able to find it. Um, and because I know Dina Lohan was a rockette. 
Yeah, totally. So, and she made a whole big deal about having been a rockette, like when Lindsay was getting famous. And it was one of those things that it's like, oh, your stage mom's also trying to like draft on you. She sure is. Yeah. Uh, but Lynn Spears didn't really do anything like that that I know of or was able to find, though, you know, that information might exist and there are way bigger Britney fans than I am. So somebody might know that. Yeah. So Mickey Mouse Club, she auditions again when she's, I think, 11 years old. And she's on it from 1992 until it's canceled in 96. And the weird thing about this iteration of the Mickey Mouse Club was that it had so many other people who also became famous, Christina Aguilera, Ryan Gosling, uh, Carrie Russell. There was somebody else that I'm forgetting. Justin Timberlake. Yay, Justin Timberlake. <laughs> How could I forget JT? He's my favorite one of those people. <laughs> uh, ish. Anyway, um, so that kind of made me wonder, and I didn't get into this particular channel of research, but like, what was up with the Mickey Mouse Club 92 to 96? Uh, like more of that Hollywood occultism stuff. Uh, hit Me Baby One More Time comes out in 1999. It's a giant hit. She becomes massively famous. She's like cranking out all this music. She is very famous now, touring all the time. And now I'm going to jump to 2004 when she starts having some troubles. Well, but really quick, like, just, yeah. I remember, because she's about a contemporary of mine. She's, like, my brother's age. Yeah. So I have this really vivid memory of opening, I think, it, I believe it was Adelia's catalog. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it would have been, I think, I want to say, like, either late 98 or early 99. Mm -hmm. And she was, like, Little Miss feature in, I think it was Delia's. It was definitely something of that ilk. And, yeah. you know, she's there with, like, the cute little, like, candy tees and the yeah. ringers. And then the next thing you know, she was on the cover of Rolling Stone. I think it was a Dave LaChapelle photo. Oh, I remember this photo. She's wearing she little, little panties and, like, the tiny tank top. Well, she's holding Tinky Winky, the Teletubby. And she's, oh, like, yeah. on her Like, oh, I'm a little girl in my bedroom with my Teletubby. so creepy. Yeah, yeah, and that was, the, that was, like, her whole jam was that, like, yeah. she was, like, in the Hit Me Baby One More Time. She's she was a in, sexy baby, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. a sexy baby. She's yeah. a very sexualized little girl. Totally. And so she's this trained performer. She's been trained, you know, since she was three years old. And they're, like, the machine that is starting to work behind her is shaping her as this thing. Like, her original intention as a singer was to do more, like, this says this on her Wikipedia page, Sheryl Crow-like music. Like she, her natural singing voice is much deeper and throatier than the one she ended up presenting us which, with, which is the cultivated baby voice that her yeah. like, publicity no. machine made her do. Yeah. So they made her into a sexy baby. She gets really fucking famous. Uh, keeps doing this. Going to 2004, this is a tiny little detail that I found in one of my readings. She injures her knee in a fall in like June of 2004. And I think this might be where her possible like drug use started because she had surgery on the knee, which is a really painful surgery. She probably started taking painkillers then. And yeah. it also seems from my perspective and what I've read that her choice making process was compromised during that time. And, 2000, and 2004 is key as well, because it was yeah. around that time, I don't know, it may have been 2003, but this is enter K-Fed, because- no, I'm getting to it. Okay, yeah, so she injures her knee in 2004, yeah. and like a month later, she gets engaged to K-Fed, whose long-term girlfriend is seven months pregnant at the time. <laughs> right, but also prior to that, child. she'd had that super, super huge, really well-publicized relationship with Justin Timberlake, which was like the big one. Yeah, that was and the then really, the next, yeah. Next thing you I know, didn't go into that. Yeah. So, Kayfed. 
they start yeah. having this relationship that's like obviously dysfunctional like immediately and this is around when her kind of public image starts to unravel she's like barefoot in public uh gas station bathrooms and like carrying bags of cheetos around and shit gets pregnant really fast they get married they film this totally insane reality show called chaotic and i tried to watch it once and i could only make it like five minutes in because i was like cringing so much did you watch it well no i was just gonna say they got married on my 21st birthday oh hey there you go i remember having my birthday and like looking and all the magazines were like this was bit britney's wedding <laughs> <laughs> So she starts having this sort of string of embarrassing things. And she's already had embarrassing things happen to her with the paparazzi where uh, there was a time when she was hanging out with Paris Hilton, uh, when she was photographed upskirt with no underwear. And it was when that whole thing was happening with like Lindsay Lohan and all these different gals. Of the upskirt and the nipple slip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the whole thing that was happening for a time. But she starts having more of these little public blunders that are seen and photographed and then discussed endlessly. Like she was photographed uh, in 2006 with her baby on her lap while she was driving. And her explanation for that was, I'm country. I did that when I was a little kid. Right. And there was another photograph of her carrying one of her babies while holding a coffee cup and wearing heels on cobblestones. And she's like stumbling and she almost drops the baby, but not the coffee. And people talk shit about her for that. I mean, embarrassing things. So the public narrative of Britney is becoming one of like, you know, she's trashy and shameful and embarrassing and a bad mom. And, you know, well, and in, in there, I remember, because I, I think I might have been like almost as avid on the celebrity magazines at this point. I was kind of like, it was a hot time, dude. People were doing all kinds of cocaine and like, it was fun to read that stuff. <laughs> lots of happening. And I remember because like I um, was living in New York every now and then around that time. And one of the only places when you're like in a hot, miserable apartment and like have nowhere to go all day yeah. that's air go sit in that big Barnes and Nobles in Union Square, yeah. each and every one of those magazines. And I remember too, that around this time, they were getting very down on her, like, oh, look at her. She's like, her body's gone. Oh, yeah. she totally. She looks lot. terrible. She's disgusting. Were, oh, and then like, yeah. she had like Eve that was all greasy one day. Right. It was just like, oh, it was like yeah. an absolute nightmare. Yeah. There was so much misogyny in these gossip magazines at that time. I mean, it was gnarly. Was uh, gnarly. Yeah. Okay, so this stuff is happening around 2006, and then it's just like a lot of this, you know, messy to dangerous kind of behavior that's in public and, you know, talked about. So she and Kevin Federline predictably do not get along well. Uh, she files for divorce in 2007, and they have a really messy custody fight. She ends up going to rehab, and in 2008... One night, she refuses to relinquish her children to their father for his custodial time, and the police arrive at her house to find her under the influence. And the following day, an emergency court hearing gives Kevin Federline sole custody of the children, and she ends up being put on a 5150 psychiatric hold at Cedars-Sinai. So this is when, you know, there was that paparazzi footage of Brittany being taken away by the ambulances on a gurney. She's totally fucking freaking out. And I think this is right before her umbrella shaved head incident. That was like- I remember that was in 2007. So yeah, that was another one of her rehab stays, of which she has had many. One of them was recently. Uh, you know, she shaved her head when she was at her hairstylist's office and then attacked a paparazzo's car with her umbrella. And she was put on psychiatric hold that time, but it was not the only time. So she's like, you know, showing signs of unraveling. Uh, some of the stories that I read mentioned her erratic drug use in 2007. And I feel like, you know, this is a woman who's 
making poor relationship choices because clearly she wasn't modeled anything like, you know, healthy. Um, and drugs didn't help. And, you know, she was a new mom and people were treating her like garbage. Well, and, and then they lost her kids. And that's really psychologically damaging. There's also like the element of it that most of us can't even begin to comprehend, which is that having been a child upon whom people's income was reliant. Like Many that's people. just, thing that's it's very, it, and we know, like we know the trope yes. of the child star, but like yes. she's dream example. Like there's a fucking machine behind that. That's exactly. like the entertainment business for a reason. It's and a business. Big machine behind her starting when she was 12 years old. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a lot of pressure to put on any human being, but on a little girl, especially a little girl who has literally been trained to do these things all her life. Um, there are some interviews with her from around um, when she was kind of coming back together from these incidents uh, because she got quieter after this. And, yeah. you know, she talks about how much anxiety she experienced about the way she looked when she was in her 20s. Um, and how she would fear having even a hair out of place. And I really remember this because I'm going to get to it in a minute, uh, having to do with her appearance now. So there was this Today story that I read about her shaved head umbrella incident. And let me read this quote from it. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Brittany was a ticking time bomb, Castro said. She was sort of giving these airs that she was okay with this whole custody thing, being very cool about it, going out and about. But in fact, she snapped. Our sources tell us that on the day they came over to take the kids away, she banged her head against the wall and went completely mental and finally just had it. Maybe or maybe this isn't true. And like, if it's true, I mean, fear and anger are an appropriate and valid reaction to the feeling that your children are being taken away from you. But if it isn't, it definitely supports the larger Britney Spears mental health is severely compromised narrative that has continued to this day. So... The kids are taken away, and this is when her father, Jamie, is awarded temporary and then permanent conservatorship of her assets. That means he controls all of her money and all of her decision-making. She has basically no adult rights. She's not allowed to vote or drive, and she doesn't have access to her own money, and she basically has no control over her life at all. I mean, it essentially, it makes her like a permanent child. Permanent in the child, eyes. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, permanent child star that he's going to continue milking for money, in my opinion. He, they are going to continue milking for money. She's making a ton of money. She, like, kept making a ton of money. This didn't ruin her career at all. Like, she had these public outbursts, but she diversified. She kept recording, for one thing, successful albums. And then she toured for three years, from, like, 2013 to 2016 or something. She had that Vegas residency. She's got a fragrance line, a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, she's made so much money over the past 10 years. Yeah, because I know that that Vegas thing is like yeah. a lucrative That's a huge thing. huge moneymaker. Yeah. Yeah. Doing shows, I think sometimes like two times a day and people are paying like, they're shelling out big time to get a yeah. ticket to uh, Yeah. Well, yeah, because she really puts on a good show and... um enjoys performing from everything I read. That's her like main passion in life. The only yeah. thing that really makes her feel truly happy. So yeah, she really wasn't on my radar though. I'm not like a super fan. I haven't kept up with her recording career. Um, she only sort of came back on my radar recently. I started seeing these free Britney things and I was like, what the hell is this? And I had been seeing these posts of hers on Instagram where she seems kind of out of it and like a little greasy and she's always wearing this like sort of smudged black eyeliner and she's either modeling different outfits or doing like weird little dances. And at first I thought, this is cute. She's doing something so 
like that a teenager would do a teenager with no social media skills you know well, about that though is like i think when you first see something like that coming yeah. from, major from a celebrity so, yeah you're like oh, refreshing yeah, it's totally. not that's you know, how it's not I like, felt about it at first. <laughs> it's not like the Kardashian who's like, yeah. oh, Daisy, I just like casually rolled out of bed and my butt looks perfect on like yeah. the 2700th picture yeah. I took. You yeah, know, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, this is just like a regular lady with like a messy bun and like last night's mascara smeared under her eyes being like, here's my new dress. I'm going to do a couple of weird spins. Mm -hmm. Anyway, <laughs> this is a whole big thing which you can find on YouTube where you find the rest of the conspiracy theories. There's so much information about like the deep level uh, visual code stuff that may or may not be occurring in these Britney videos. Was it like, like one of those Renaissance paintings where there's like a monkey taking a piece of fruit out of a bowl in the background and you're like- There's a guy uh, who talks about <laughs> the symbolism of the rose and like even going into some occult stuff, like having to do with roses that she has posted. I was really actually impressed with this guy's level of attention to detail. Yeah, so, we Oh. <laughs> conservatorship was supposed to end. This conservatorship was supposed to end. But let me say, in the meantime, she was supposed to have a residency, another residency coming up in Las Vegas. And she had a lot of control over the creative direction of this show. And it was supposed to be really interactive with her fans. And apparently she was really looking forward to it. So in December of 2019, she canceled it. She posted something on her Instagram about her father's health. He had like a colon rupture or something. She said she was canceling the residency to help her father care for his health. So this other care manager steps in. This person is her conservatorship, her personal manager under the conservatorship. This woman's name is Jody Montgomery. Uh, she controls all of Britney's guests and all of her medication and you know all of her social media output. She's got handlers with her all the time. She's basically Britney's babysitter under this conservatorship because Jamie's health was too poor to be in charge of those things anymore, but he's still in charge of all the money. So also in 2019, earlier in 2019, this care manager, Jody Montgomery, I don't know if this is true, but allegedly this was some super fan of Britney's who like eventually weaseled her way into Britney's inner circle. Ooh, you know what that reminds me of? Selena. Yeah, you'll love so yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it really creeped me out when I heard that thing. The tour was not really canceled so she could care for her dad. The tour was canceled, allegedly, because Brittany refused to take the excess medication they have been giving her. So what the story is, and it's really hard to find any official story about what Brittany's mental health diagnoses actually are. People said things about bipolar 1 and ADHD when she had her, like, 2006 to 8 freak out well and there was also at that point i believe there was some talk of um like postpartum psychosis being right, an element exactly yeah but that didn't even get talked about that much mostly people were just saying bipolar because they think it's a word they know <laughs> for somebody who freaks out and now her camp is saying although not as far as i know officially that she has dementia that oh. she has dementia she's 38 years old they're saying she has dementia and can't think for herself but She's on medication both prescribed to her and not prescribed to her. And a lot of people are saying she is on excess medication, including antipsychotic medication, which from my personal experience as being a woman who visits doctors for anxiety problems, doctors are really eager to give antipsychotics to people for reasons as small as like insomnia. And antipsychotics can really make your appearance puffy, 
weird messy bun, greasy face with running makeup, and totally out of it, which in my opinion is how she looks in a lot of these videos. Something interesting that you mentioned the dementia is I, shortly before we got on, mm -hmm. was just like brushing up on my Frances Farmer because she was someone else who I was thinking a lot about in this sort of um, sorority, this sorority no one wants to be a member of. Um, and she was diagnosed, I mean, pretty much everyone was diagnosed schizophrenic. Yeah, that was what the diagnosis day. was back then. But part of her diagnosis was also dementia. Yeah. And so that's like, it's an interesting um, cross-hatching of diagnoses. And also something that I think about like in relation to my own grandmother who was given like really heavy duty antidepressants mm -hmm. in the 1980s. And my father like anecdotally is convinced that they contributed to her later dementia. So yeah. there's definitely, there's something to be said for, um, and like also like Hollywood doctor, like classic Hollywood doctor syndrome. That's we could be, get, yeah. be getting scripts from like in excess of like five, six people. They don't like left hand doesn't know what right hand's doing. Even regular non-famous people in Los Angeles have a lot of access to medications. I know a lot of people. And in fact, for a short time was one of those people who like, I could get myself medications that I truly did not need. <laughs> so that was more commonplace, you know, before, but she's a famous person with endless resources and her people who control all of her stuff can probably get whatever they want. So Brittany yeah. refuses to take she the medication or at least refuses to take the excess medication. The story is unclear. And her dad cancels her tour because touring and performing are the only things that bring her joy. So like a true narcissistic abuser, he has taken away her source of joy because she will not comply with his orders. Anyway, this is alleged. Uh, but I fucking believe it because it sounds really familiar to me. I mean, I have experienced narcissistic people and how much they like to deprive people of joyful things in order to control and exploit them. The other thing I want to get to is Brittany's money issue. So she's continued to make a ton of money all this time. She's worth maybe, and it's hard to get clear information on this, but something around $750 million. And... She receives a weekly allowance of $1,500. <laughs> That's all she gets out of her money to spend. And her dad was getting, I don't know if he still is, a $100,000 a year salary for acting as her conservator. And obviously all these other people are hangers on, managers and stuff are making tons of money off of her. What were you going to say? I just, I don't really know anything about, about her dad you know what I mean like I, I yeah. feel like I probably know more about the mom and it's like it's a little bit interesting that the dad becomes the conservator since the mom seemed to be the one who was so right. much more in her life prior. I thought so too and yeah. I mean I think it's the dad who's interested in um exploiting her for money it seems like that's what is happening here I mean at least you know based on my observation of this um and the sort of weird familiarity I feel with some of the aspects of this story. But um, I did also hear something, unfortunately didn't read it, about uh, Jamie Spears having a history of being exploitative in business relationships and kind of dishonest and, uh, you know, manipulating things toward his own financial favor. So I guess this is not out of character for him to do this kind of thing where he's like, 
exploiting his daughter and milking her for cash, keeping her over-medicated so she's docile, and also seems in public like she's kind of a mess and maybe she really can't take care of herself. And the fact that these things are up for review in court this year, the conservatorship, there are a lot of people who stand to lose a lot of money if she's deemed able of taking care of herself. I don't know if she can or not. Well, I mean, my concern hearing this whole thing is where... Because this also reminds me a lot, like, I, I was a, an avid viewer of the Anna Nicole show when that was on. I love yeah. I her. I just, I thought she was Why so great. Why wouldn't you? She is so great. She's a, so such a bright light. I, R.I.P. I just, I really, I really genuinely. I agree. She had a really good heart. And you did. Could you could and really- she just, like, so just beautiful. Like, even when she had, like, she was all puffy and everything, she was wearing, like, sweatsuits. She was just, like, radiant. Uh, but. Yeah. I think about like her and I just, I always think in these situations, like who is there who's gonna really advocate for her right. and like really have her best interest at heart and like really want her to be well. And right. it's really concerning that it seems like, you know, and even someone like Elizabeth Taylor kind of yes. had this off too, where you're just like constantly kind of like meeting people that like love bomb you and mm-hmm. it seems like a good thing. And then the next thing you know, they're just like exploiting you again too. And so I just, it's so, it's so frustrating. Like I want so badly for there to be even like a friend who like knew her as a teenager, who's just like, look, you know what girl, like I'm just going to shit about your basic welfare and I want to help you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, I'll give myself like living expenses or have like a cabana on the property. And I'm like, I'm actually just here because I am worried about you. And like, it doesn't seem like there's anybody doing that. And maybe I'm wrong. Like not allowed to have contact with anyone who will do that for her. She has been completely isolated. I mean, completely. She has no control over her social media. Um, They kept uh, holding the children over her head. So she gave Kevin Federline 100% custody. So they could no longer do that. Uh, there are all these like little pieces of evidence that she's trying to fight back against this control. But like, it was really hard for me not to personalize this experience because I kept seeing people who were incredulous that a parent could do this to a child. But like, parents can be like this, and it's more frequent than you think. And like, some parents who are like this view the child as you know expendable and worthless. And some parents view the child as exploitable and worth. There's like a Munchausen angle too. Yes, totally. I mean, if you tell somebody she's crazy for long enough, she's probably going to believe it. And I've had men try that with me. And, you know, that shit works over time. Like if you hear it for long enough, you start to believe it. And if you're surrounded by this cabal of people, you're going to start to believe these stories about yourself. And you're not ever going to be allowed the time for self-reflection or, you know, growth to sort of see the larger picture when you're trapped in this thing and everything is limited for you. Like you really are a child. They give her an allowance. I mean, she makes $138 million a year or something crazy like that. And her allowance is $1,500 a week, (laughs) which I mean, that would be great for me. I'm a single mom, but like, dude, it's it's Britney Spears. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, there was also the Andrew Gallery letter, which I urge all of you to Google. It was a letter uh, written by Brittany around 2009, but this guy who used to work for her and had a very close friendly relationship with her was not allowed to read it under the terms of the NDA he had to sign, uh, which expired recently. And it's basically a cry to be rescued from this shitty situation. She talks about how she was forced to divorce Kevin Federline, even though she didn't want to. Oh, another really horrible thing about this story is that her dad physically attacked her son, Jaden, who I think is the younger one, 
And her boys are around my son's age, so they're like 11, 13. First one was like born when they got married, so he might be closer to like 15 or 16 now. Might be. Yeah, I think this is all easily look upable material, but he physically attacked his grandson. And so Kevin Federline tried to take out a restraining order against Jamie Spears, Brittany's dad, and like prove that he's a danger. So, you know, this guy's violent. He's violent to children, clearly very controlling. And, you know, hashtag free Brittany 2020. (laughs) It's my final position. I just really uh, find it appalling that a. Mental health narrative can be created about a woman in such a way as to trap and exploit her forever. (laughs) It's like that Black Mirror episode where Miley Cyrus is the pop star and they keep her drugged and like controlled until she goes into a coma and then they like use her consciousness to project a fake version of her. Yeah, it's like, I mean, that's probably partly inspired by. Yeah, totally. By Britney's actual um probable or alleged experience i mean it's hard to know you know there's uh and like what can you do fans are asking her in the comments wear a yellow shirt if you need to be rescued if you're being held against your will and she'll wear a yellow shirt but you know maybe the narcissist is allowing her to do that to play along with this maybe they hope to get publicity out of it and yeah i guess we'll see what happens because she's going to be going to court soon about the conservatorship stuff and hopefully things will end up in her favor and if she is on way too many antipsychotic meds i hope they take her off of them so that she become can become the you know articulate functioning woman she was as little as 15 years ago if you see interviews with her from the early 2000s she's very self-possessed smart sharp articulate and if you see her now she looks like she's been lobotomized i mean it's crazy and that could easily be drugs easy to get drugs (laughs) yeah i don't know what else (laughs) i don't either yeah i find it really sad that people are willing to exploit other people so much yeah i mean i think i might my worry for her is just like where in the twilight landscape she is you know like Mm -hmm. if it's constantly being chemically um Mm -hmm. detained somehow i just don't know how like you know like i I think there's it's it's ideal to say for her to bounce back to maybe this sort of status she may have been as a 20 year old Mm -hmm. um but she's just experienced so much trauma and her life experience is so, so warped. <laughs> yeah, I just, she's I had wonder... profoundly traumatic experiences in her life. Yeah, because I mean, I just, I feel like fame anyways, like extreme fame, mm-hmm. is such a fucking corrosive agent in people's lives that then added on to the, it's like a layer cake. Yeah, of- trauma after trauma. And just like multi-dimensional reality tweaking that I just, I, I wonder, you know, like really what, like, where is Brittany? <laughs> you know, like if, if all, you know, all things being all obstacles melting right. away. And if she came like, and took care of where? all her shit, <laughs> like where's Brittany? Being isolated from her children and isolated from any form of healthy support. I don't know what her relationship is with her mother right now. Um, It sounds, I listened to a long interview with her brother, Brian Spears, and it was very boring and he didn't really shed much light on much of anything really, except he did say this one curious thing at like minute 2106 about 
there being a lot of women in the family. And it struck me as this weird kind of Southern misogyny point of view. Um, so, you know, certainly a tiny part of this is her cultural background. Like if the view of women that she grew up with is one that, you know, where women are supposed to be quiet because Jane, uh, Brian Spears, the brother says something about how, you know, he's always having to listen to the women in the family because there are so many of them and they all need to speak their minds. And it was fucking weird the way he said it, I thought. But uh, if in her background, there's already an inclination to quell the voice of a woman and you get this woman who's like a performer trained practically from birth, who makes you a ton of money, you're going to quiet her voice. If her voice says anything like, I don't want to do this, or what you're doing to me is wrong, or, you know, any of that. Her humanity is not worth anything to the people around her, IMO. And that's something I've personally experienced, and it sucks. <laughs> people will go to great lengths to destroy the humanity of a person who they think might cost them money in some way if they are able to speak for themselves. So that seems to be the motivation that the uh, YouTubers I've been watching have agreed upon for, you know, Britney's dad and this other group of people to keep her suppressed and performing. But I guess as of now, she's refusing to perform. So this is a developing story. As of COVID, nobody can perform, so. Right, yeah. So but I mean, she's not even really doing anything like creating uh, albums or she could be recording an album or whatever, you know. She could be creating some kind of sellable content right now during COVID. I guess that also my question that I come to in all these situations is like, how much money do people think they need to? I like, know! Dude, I think about that too. People don't need that much money. Not really. I mean... You don't need that much money. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a hoarder. I, yeah, I feel like there's a certain point at which, I mean, there's definitely a point at which it becomes like a diminishing return feature. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess, I guess that for me kind of is like a noodle scratcher where it's yeah. like, what happens at the end? Like she's Judy Garland and like you, well, like Tupac Shakur can't even like yes. stop being used by people to make I money at holograms. I Jackson either. I Ruined his whole life. It's just, I, like, the whole thing really is, like, it's it's very mystifying in some ways to me. Because it's, like, I don't think there's a single, like, I'm kind of at a point right now where I almost don't spend money on anything. So, like, there's, like, people who I think are good performers. And then part of the problem of being a musician anyway, especially now that, like, basically album sales don't exist. Because right. every like, potentially free on Spotify, like, the yeah. music is is such like a fucking weird beast that like i don't know the whole thing to me is is all a bit like outside of my <laughs> like, yeah totally like the I, all of it <laughs> <laughs> it's insane she's like an animal i mean i feel like they're treating her like an animal and it speaks to a larger societal problem of the dehumanization of women, and it occurs at all kinds of different levels. I mean, I had a man try to put me on excess medication once so he could make me more docile and compliant, and like, that's because it was an abusive relationship, and I left. I'm just going to keep paying attention, I guess, to what happens with Brittany, and hope that the conversation about mental illness in this country can become a little bit more compassionate and uh, informed. <laughs>
rather than just being like, oh, she did a crazy thing and like now she's doing another crazy thing. So throw her on the crazy pile and leave her there, which is what happened to Zelda. Yeah, it's happened to, I mean, it's definitely, it's, it's been, it's been going on, been going on. And I think that there's just like new language around it and yeah. like sleight of hand around it. It's hard like to know how to, like for someone who's in an, in a situation, not obviously quite like Britney because Britney's is rather unique. Like she's right. pretty, everything gets so skewed in such a way and slanted in such a way and gaslit and everything else that that you don't even realize it's happening when you're in these situations most of the time. Or like people can acclimatize themselves. Yes whatever their you know circumstances are because well, that is reality. yeah dysfunction was normalized for her at a very early age and she became accustomed to being a performer and moneymaker at a very early age yeah and that that comes to the that speaks to the the continuum of of monetization pricelessness worthlessness capitalism totally we woke up tomorrow in a world where suddenly for whatever reason there was no way that money would come from Britney at all. You know what I mean? Like if there was just like nothing she did, it would make any money. Like then what, you know, where's Britney? If there's no, if there's no incentive. She stops being a cash cow. To have her be a cash cow. Yeah. I mean, well, if the people around her are no longer incentivized in any way, I'm sure they'll abandon her because that's usually what happens. And one would hope that, Brittany would use that occasion to develop or, you know, find and then develop her inner resources. Maybe she'd become a nightclub singer. Maybe singing is just what makes her happy. And if she were set free from all of this, she could just do that. Or maybe she can be set free from this if she needs to be set free from this and become the performer that she seems to have always wanted to be. Like in 2006, she recorded an album using her real voice. And I guess the label like killed it because they still want her to be baby voice Britney. So, you know, even the performer she's being encouraged slash made to be is not an accurate reflection of the perhaps artist who lives inside of her. Yeah. Well, we, I guess we don't know right now. <laughs> we don't know. We'll find out. We'll keep you posted, everybody. Enigma, like, I just, I mean, what I want for her is what I would want for anybody, which is um, to have a sense of, of just, like, being being supported yeah and some personal agency she should be allowed to vote she should definitely be allowed to vote um and honestly like speaking of her becoming you know whatever like i think that that's been a big part of the narrative around quarantine is this idea that like oh now we all finally have been like liberated to improve ourselves become yeah. our best more of this do yeah. more of that and there's like a whole set of, I don't even want to call it a backlash, but there's sort of this like soft cooing that goes on that's like, hey, you know, maybe quarantine's just like a great opportunity to wear sweatpants and eat Taco Bell. And like, honestly, if that's all Brittany wants to do for the rest of time. She's earned it, man. Meet <laughs> up, girl. Like, do your thing, live your life, relax. Yeah, just for, yeah, just. Yeah. What I want for Brittany is that, like, that, that she can just be in a place where she can, like, I don't know what she is actually in human design. I don't know if she's a sacral um, decision maker, what kind of decision maker she is, but yeah. where she just, like, feels like if she's making a decision that it's hers. Right. I wonder if she's ever had that feeling. Truly. Well, I don't know. Yeah. But Probably that, with Kevin Federline, it feels like that was when she was stepping out of line with what the, you know, 
team of handlers wanted. That was her act of rebellion. Yeah, K-Fed is a whole other can of worms. Totally. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that guy. <laughs> oh, he's a Fresnan. <laughs> he lucked out, married Britney Spears. Like the soul sister of, t- of a sort. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, the Central Valley is a really weird place. It's weird how that happens with celebrities. Like, there's celebrities that you kind of just, like, have a little feeling about just because they yeah. come from where you came from like yeah. I remember um Kate Bosworth was from like the town over from where oh. my lived. and you, I don't you represent don't, a whole other kind of east coast <laughs> I'm definitely just not from that part like it, it's yeah. weird because, like my whole family lives there but I definitely every time I go there it's like I feel like like a specimen <laughs> it's been like <laughs> over from a different probably zoo. good dude that's probably good Dude, I don't know. But um, yeah, I'm just trying to think if there's any other like notable hometown type people. Posting a document on the Patreon with all the links that I watch and some notes that I took about Brittany. Should you want to accompany me down this rabbit hole? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's all, folks. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Macbeth. Um, we, I don't know yet when we'll be back. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence for when our next... We'll figure it out. Yeah, it might be like a couple of weeks, but we will, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Uh, we'll keep the Patreon going. Check us out on Patreon. I think it's Patreon slash uh, young underscore Americans. And we also have an Instagram. At, young, yeah. young underscore, young Americans, underscore and, Americans. Yeah. And email as well. Email. Yeah. yeah. Youngamericanspod at gmail.com. Yeah. Send us any like over there. Yeah. Whatever you yeah. want. And thank you for joining us.